0: Today on the J Doherty podcast, impeachment once again takes over the headlines. United States House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has finally decided to formally send the articles to the Senate, and now the ball is in their court. What happens next? Also, new developments in 2020 land. Impeachment is being used as an asset and a liability when it comes to talking points, and the candidates are dropping like mad. Who seems the most vile at this point on policy and electability? And finally, Ricky Gervais's Golden Globe speech. It was controversial, and it attacked Hollywood's elites at a ridiculously humorous pace. Did it go too? Far? How far? Was it accurate? How and why? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 119 of the J Doherty Podcast.
1: This. Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That's
0: correct, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. It's number 119. It is about 4 p.m. It's a little bit later start to this podcast today, and we have so much planned. We're going to get right into it with the big story of the entire year, probably uh, the one that has taken over the headlines in just so many ways. Nancy Pelosi has sent the articles to the Senate, the articles of impeachment to the Senate, for their uh, whatever they're going to do with the next, probably just going to quit him. We'll see exactly what happens, but basically, Nancy Pelosi now no longer has control over this impeachment stuff, So because and now it's in uh, Republican Mitch McConnell's hands. He has control over it. It is now no longer in the control. And by the way, obviously Mitch McConnell is allied with Donald Trump, So, and there's so many conflicts of interest on both sides in this thing, it's sort of ridiculous. But it's no longer, this impeachment investigation is no longer in Nancy Pelosi's hands. And I think in order to understand the significance of that and why that actually matters, we have to go back to the beginning, at least short, very briefly recap how this happened. The process is basically what I'm going to be talking about for a couple seconds. As we've witnessed, impeachment starts with an impeachment inquiry. That's what the Democrats launched to get this entire thing going, in which usually it's proposed by the opposing party. In all cases in the history of this country, it's been imposed by the opposing party uh, into actions they fa- feel that may need to be prosecuted. Then a committee, uh, usually and in this case the House Judiciary Committee, vote on this, and before it actually even made it made the the inquiry made its way to Jerry Nadler's desk, and who's the chair of the House Ju- Judiciary Committee. It was on Adam Schiff's desk who led the sort of investigation to compile all the evidence uh, and witness testimony in order to get this actually going to the House Judiciary Committee that involved Gordon Sondland uh, and and uh, so many others to sort of testify on the ongoings of Marie Ivanovich and so many other people. So that is where it goes from, basically, to, to recap, it goes from House impeachment inquiry launched by Nancy Pelosi to... Adam Schiff, chairing the House Intelligence Committee, to Jerry Nadler, chairing the House Judiciary Committee, all the way back to Nancy Pelosi, where uh, whereby all of her representatives uh, in the House of Representatives, which has a 232 to 197 majority in the House right now, vote on it. So that means that even if 34 Democrats were to vote against impeachment, it would still go right the way to the Senate and leave their hands and go and escalate in its case. So it already has gone through about four ranks of escalation, and of, and of course, all those ranks are controlled by the Democrats, but nonetheless, it is still pretty lengthy into the process, and that's where we are right now. The The, uh, the articles are going to the Senate, and the Senate, of course, is not controlled by Democrats, by a majority. They uh, do not. Is con- the, the majority leader of the House is uh, Mitch McConnell. And the minority leader of the House is, of course, Chuck Schumer. So they're they're sort of going to be the new the new figureheads in this entire thing. It's no longer to be no longer going to be Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, who's played sort of a minimal role on this, at least publicly, and uh, relative to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but that's where we are right now. So back to the present. Pelosi's part in the days leading up to this ceremony, where this case is effectively transferred from the House, which of course she is the boss of, to the Senate, which Mitch McConnell is the boss of was unusual to say the least. When she was signing this thing, she looked really happy. It was sort of strange. She handed out pens at the ceremony. You probably have seen presidents uh, hand out pens, uh, large, you know, chairs of of committees hand out pens when they're sort of signing something celebratory. Trump has handed out pens on numerous ceremonies when he's fulfilling sort of campaign promise, uh, or something that's like a big deal, that's really like a ginormous advancement for the history of our country. I mean, this this has been going on for a long time, I think all the way back to Roosevelt. I mean, Obama did it, Bush did it, all the rest did it. I, I Again, I think Roosevelt was the first one to start doing it, according to the White House. Uh, but nonetheless, it is unusual to be handing out pens as, as a congratulatory gift when you're impeaching someone for high crimes and misdemeanors. There was a very inappropriate, celebratory mood when when they were impeaching uh, this president. It is not a good thing for the president to be impeached, no matter what side you are on. If it is a Democrat being impeached, it is terrible. If it is a Republican being impeached, it is terrible. It is a loss for our country, and it just totally rattles the moral compass of the nation. And the media's coverage of this entire thing has been conflicting at best. Uh, why I say conflicting? Well, Dana Bash over at CNN, who is their chief political correspondent judged Pelosi, actually, for her behavior just a couple minutes after she signed off on impeachment officially. And keep in mind, the Democrats and the media are trying to paint this entire thing to be historic and rattling to the country, which it should be, but even as an independent and witnessing this in a very outwardly liberal community here in Chicago, there doesn't really seem to be much of an impact as a result of this impeachment. And to be honest, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why, other than the fact that both sides Both the Democrats and the Republicans have done a terrible job handling it, especially Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. Here's what Dana Bash had to say in the immediate aftermath of Nancy Pelosi signing these articles. We
2: are used to seeing um, signing ceremonies, handing out pens at moments of celebration when a president is signing legislation, uh, when even sometimes, a rare occasion, but it has happened, when the House sends over a landmark piece of legislation. um, It was... It was unusual to see that kind of um, of ceremony and and making, you know, handing out the pens and smiling for a picture Mm -hmm. in this kind of situation where the House Speaker has bent over backwards to say publicly and privately, this is somber. This is not a time for a celebration. Understandable. This is history. And the people who are involved want to mark the moment. uh, But I didn't expect to see that.
0: Yeah, 100 percent. She's actually totally right. And that's why I say conflicting. I mean, this lady is. The chief political correspondent. She's been historically liberal on so many issues for the network. Uh, she's actually a pretty decent reporter when it comes to the objective stuff. She's actually a really good reporter uh, when it comes to the objective stuff, but her subjective analysis, as like uh, as pretty much everyone on on CNN for the most part, is incredibly liberal, and she didn't really take that much of a liberal stance. She did not congratulate Pelosi for being so proud to impeach. It's not like, you know, this is some accomplishment because, you know, while it may be a short-term accomplishment for Pelosi and the bubble of Democrats that she surrounded herself with, like Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, and so many others, it really is not a victory in the long term for our country, by any means. And and Nancy Pelosi did not hesitate to, to act the opposite way. So, you know, the reason I bring the media into this is because, Generally, whatever CNN is doing, the Democrats are doing or have already done, and that's similarly to the Republicans with Fox News, especially the Oval Office, part of that Republican sector. So, yeah, it's just amusing. Uh, Kamala Harris also reacted to this. She's the former presidential candidate. She dropped out of the race a couple weeks ago. She still has her seat in the Senate, by the way, not to mention, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, who continue to hold their seats in the Senate, even though they're... Um, running for president to get this guy who they're impeaching out of it. There's, of course, absolutely no conflict of interest there. <laughs> anyway, Kamala was caught red-handed laughing about, uh, well, it wasn't about this per se, but it was on MSNBC. It's hard to visualize without without uh, video, so we'll have the link at jay slash Kamala laughing. But basically, Kamala is uh, in the hall of the Senate, or, or somewhere in the Capitol, She's talking with someone off-camera, just laughing, having the, <laughs> the greatest time of her life. But as soon as she realizes the camera is on, she goes right into the sadness and serious, very solemnity, uh, you know, mind, set of mind or frame of mind with this investigation and this impeachment. She was sort of looking at someone off-camera. She's just chuckling like it's the best day of her life. And then as soon as she realizes the camera uh, is on her, when the TriCaster switches to the Capitol building, she just all of a sudden, it almost looks like she she changed into a, like another person consumed her body type thing. It's actually pretty bad for Kamala, who, remember, is a multi-millionaire. She laughed and encouraged some supporter for using the R word. She, she apologized for it, but one, it's one of the worst things that you could possibly do, and she's putting on this nonsense facade uh, for uh, this impeachment. And I don't think that's really good. I really don't. I think that's partially where the Democrats are struggling on this actually fully where the Democrats are struggling on this. As I talked about previously, she was, is, and always will be my least favorite 2020 candidate besides Donald Trump uh, because of many reasons. A, that R-word comment, uh, one of the few things, that's really one of the few things that gets me really uh, upset in terms of social stuff. And B, how bad she was at debating and articulating her policy. She literally could not do it. In many cases, she had really good lines to come out with and she would not be able to back it up. Anyway, On to something uh, a bit more uh, worth your time, but not much. We'll talk about Rashida Tlaib and how she was seen laughing. She said, hi guys, I'm on my way to impeach the president. Just another awesome day at work. What? Sort of unbelievable. Before we get to that, did you know that you can listen to the J-Droid podcast on the JD Media Network at j-droid.com? All you have to do is go to j-droid.com and you will see uh, the most recent episode of this podcast, including this one that I'm speaking to you on right now on the home screen, plus there are archives of every single show I've ever made, so if you want to listen to all of that and more, go to j-deordy.com to learn more. Okay, Rashida Tlaib was seen laughing, she literally recorded a, a selfie video of herself laughing, she was like, hi guys, I'm on my way to impeach the president, just another awesome day at work. Here's what she said, she posted this on social media, just a casual video, she sort of Speedwalking through the the long hallways of the Capitol.
3: Hey everyone, I am on my way to the United States House floor (laughs) to impeach (laughs) President Trump.
0: You can just hear her smile.
3: On behalf of my incredible district, 13 districts strong. Let's do this.
0: So, again, uh, you know, Rashida Tleeman and Donald Trump have an incredibly complicated relationship. Uh, Trump has treated her horribly. Uh, and she is not holding back in any way. I think it's wholly inappropriate to say, like, oh, I'm, I'm so excited, I'm going to go impeach the president, you know, you know, ruin the country's moral compass, or at least be a part of it. And it's not a good thing. And this is not the first time that Tlaib has been outwardly jocular about these sorts of things. Uh, and she actually has faced a lot of uh, partisan criticism on both sides, bipartisan criticism, from Republicans, obviously, but also Democrats have really, really been outwardly jocular uh, you know, discontent with the way she's treated this, even going back to around this time last year, where she used vulgarity to express the way that she p- wants to impeach Donald Trump.
3: Bullies don't win. And I no. said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there, we're going to
0: impeach the motherfuckers. <laughs> so that is just so darn inappropriate on so many levels. She prefaced that, as you heard, by saying, can- oh, wait, no, that's not the right clip. Let's go to uh, clip number 26.
3: Bullies don't win. And no. I said, baby, they...
0: She says, bullies don't win. How can you say that you're going to impeach someone for being a bully? I've witnessed many, many people be bullied, but that is not a crime. And I this, this is what happens when you have a lunatic number one, Donald Trump, and lunatic number one A, Rashida Tlaib, go at it. They're both crazy. Trump's statements about go back and all that garbage was awful. As I pointed out before, so I'm not—I am not. I'm not defi- I think they're both equally insane uh, for a lot of different reasons. Trump's probably a little bit more, uh, but I think all that garbage was awful, and no American deserves to be treated like that, and it's, I think she holds sort of an inevitable bias against him that is going to play out in the long term, which is pretty dangerous and sort of subjectively twisted to reinforce her own political views rather than perhaps her district's maybe not, I don't know. But there were, however, sprinkled across the past couple of months, some more reasonable responses from Democrats. I'm not only just playing the worst ones. I'm going to talk about some good ones. Uh, to Tlaib's statements, both recently and in the past. Uh, also, impeachment as a whole. And there's also really good compilation from Global News, where they go through uh, how Democrats originally responded to Rashida Tlaib's remarks all the way back in 2019, the beginning of 2019, John Lewis, in my opinion, had the best response. And keep in mind, this guy is a hardcore Democrat who's served in the Congress for decades. cannot accomplish very much of anything unless you have civility. So I would say the deal are inappropriate. Yeah, exactly. That's that's literally ex- what you have to say. And John Lewis has served in Congress for, a, for quite some time. He is a long-term Democrat uh, and, you know, very, very good person and an activist in so many different ways. So, I mean... He is certainly, I mean, he's been in the House since 1987, that's what it says, so, I mean, again, he's a hardcore Democrat, he did not like what Rashida Tlaib had to say about impeachment, this is, again, before, months before Nancy Pelosi launched this entire thing, so it was sort of a crazy idea at the time, and also, uh, the idea of, you know, Projecting your own views, saying, "Oh, this is a bully. We need to impeach him." That is not justification. That is not a crime, and no matter what side you take on it, so you can that can be sort of an adjunct reason for you disliking him. But for impeachment, it's sort of dangerous to equate your own personal feelings being hurt uh, or other personal feel others' personal feelings being hurt uh, with a crime, charging someone with a crime, even though. Again, the go-back thing is a totally different case that is morally deplorable on Trump's behalf in so many different ways. Uh, here's that compilation I was speaking about from various Democrats when Rashida Tweeb said these crazy things about impeachment when, uh, at first, when, when she first made these statements.
1: There's a lot of heated discussion going on. We ought to get the level down, open up the government, get people working, get the American government working for the American people.
4: I don't think we're at the impeachment stage, and I think that we have to uh, also try to get something done for the American people. That's why they hired us.
3: You don't, impeachment would tear this country apart. You gotta have facts, but we still have a responsibility for oversight. I that, those that, are all uh, Democrats,
4: by the way. 100, you know, 200, 300 million allies who feel that the president is not doing a good job and that the country would be better off uh, if he
2: weren't in the White House. Impeachment is not dead. Uh, this is not about Democrats. It's about democracy. It's not about Republicans. It's about the Republican saving the Republic. I believe that we have a clarion call to move forward.
0: Exactly. I mean, I mean uh, this was way back in the day, but it's you, if you heard those in, the, in today's context, you'd probably think they're like the most right Republicans there's possibly out there. No, those are Democrats. Those are Democrats. In the present day, though, we must return. Nancy Pelosi has been acting pretty odd. As I said, her and Donald Trump are sort of up there in terms of uh, craziness these days. Uh, Well, I don't know if that's pretty fair. I mean, Nancy Pelosi still has some grasp on reality, but she's been acting pretty odd. Like, actually sort of strange. First, the fact that she was smiling while handing out those pens and then basically said that the allegations that uh, are being made against Trump are almost the equivalent of evidence. This is where it gets really dangerous, going off of what Rashida Tlaib was previously saying about this. She basically equated, or somewhat equated, the idea of allegations against the president for uh, misconduct as uh, something that is close to evidence. And she makes it a little bit clear. but I think playing, uh, you know, Dancing around these words is a little bit dangerous. Here's what she had to say in her weekly press conference.
3: Uh, So in any case, it's not a question of saying uh, what proof. It says what allegations have been made, and that has to be subjected uh, to scrutiny as to how we go forward. But it should not be ignored uh, in the context of other uh, events that have happened that would substantiate uh, some of that.
0: So, yeah, she's sort of dancing around things being a little bit unclear, but to say that, you know, almost insinuate that allegations have uh, the similar weight of evidence in a judicial system when she is presiding over the entire House, a little bit dangerous. That clip I played came from her weekly press conference where she actually took quite the interesting stance on the actual events within the impeachment, some new ones, specifically the man himself, Lev Parnas, the the Soviet-born Giuliani-allied, Trump-supporting Ukrainian. He has been indicted for falsifying documents, and Democrats want to bring the guy in as a witness to Trump's actual impeachment in the Senate. So, that's sort of funny. I mean, he has so many conflicting interests, I would never... Like to call anyone guilty before they've—I never like to call anyone guilty before they've been convicted of anything, and he has not been convicted of anything. He's only been charged. But this guy, along with his compadres Igor Fruman, who was discussed in in quite some great length on episode number one hundred eleven of the Jade Ordi podcast, as well as Andre Kukushkin and David Correa, they were all indicted for the following, as stated by uh, Jeffrey Steven Berman over at the uh, United States Attorney General's uh, District Office in uh, New York. He says, quote, The defendants, and this includes uh, Kukushkin, Correa, Fruman, and Parnas, The defendants broke the law to gain political influence while avoiding disclosure of who was actually making the donations and where the money was coming from. Okay, so then it goes on a little bit. But just to give you some context, these guys are are slicksters. They're trying to do Rudy Giuliani's business and and so many other things. This may not make sense right now if you haven't been following it, but I'm going to sort of explain it after I read the entire thing. The entire first paragraph from the uh, Attorney General's District Office in New York. He says quote they sought political influence not only to advance their own financial interests but to advance the political interests of at least one foreign official a Ukrainian government official who sought the dismissal of the US ambassador to Ukraine protecting the integrity of our elect- elections and protecting our elections from unlawful foreign influence are core function of our campaign finance laws and as this office has made clear we will not hesitate to investigate and prosecute those who engage in criminal conduct that draws into question the integrity of our political process so obviously you can see that whole paragraph, plus a little bit of extra, basically reads that these guys were pro-Trump, pro-Giuliani, and they led a money-based campaign to get rid of Ukrainian Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch from her office. The man behind this, the point person, Mr. Rudolph William Lewis Giuliani. You know, why he doesn't stay out of these messes, I really don't know. He could he, he could be living a decent life, maybe have a good law practice, you know, just or or just live off of his legacy as New York mayor, New York City mayor. But no, he gets into these messes with foreign countries about, you know, uh, election interference. Why oh why does he do this, I don't know. Giuliani uses Parnas and Fruman, two of those uh, people, as I talked about in episode number 111, as Ukraine point people. That's what I like to call them. And all Parnas wanted, for whatever reason, is to get Ivanovich out of her seat as uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And, um... If you cannot talk directly... I mean, so that that was sort of his motivation. He was trying... And same with Giuliani's. They were trying to get her out of her position and trying to get the president to fire her because he's the one who has the authority. But Parnas could not talk to uh, Trump. So he has to talk to the person that he knows that is closest to Trump, which is Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. So he's going to talk to his lawyer, and that is basically the the functional equivalent of talking to the president. Uh, And that's what he did. So, right now, Parnas is in panic mode. He's been indicted. He's going on, he's on bail right now. He's going on every network to make his case and answer reporters' questions about what he did or did not do in Ukraine. And this has not been going too well. I mean, he, Giuliani, and Trump are sort of like the three idiotic musketeers in this situation. It is a chain of guilt placement that is being painted by Parnas, as I like to call it. Basically, in my mind, what happened, and was still we don't know the complete picture, is Trump tells Giuliani what to do, Giuliani tells Parnas what to do, and somehow, as a result of all of this, in a foreign country, none of them are guilty. Here is Anderson Cooper on Thursday night asking uh, Parnas about what I like to call this chain of guilt placement. Rudy Giuliani said on speakerphone to the man who now runs Ukrainian intelligence that you represent Giuliani and the president. Absolutely.
2: No, the president directly. He knew you I'm represent really, the president. Correct. And that's why they spoke to me, and that's why, they, that's why I got out of there alive.
4: You can say
2: with 100% certainty
0: that everything Rudy Giuliani did in Ukraine was done with the president's blessing, whether or not he had foreknowledge or was told about it afterward, but Giuliani and the president were in frequent communication.
2: Beyond frequent, several times a day. Um, the uh, Rudy wouldn't do anything without the president' so just like I wouldn't do anything without Rudy's
0: so you can see this guy's sort of a goofball just trying to you know sort of out there to make money uh and in you know this guy I mean I'm a strong believer in innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but there is no reason that he should be brought in as a witness in this impeachment investigation as Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats have suggested. Uh, why? Because <laughs> he has a laundry list of conflicting interests. And not only that, he, like Giuliani, are pathological liars. Speaking of pathological liars, here's Donald Trump being asked by Jim Acosta whether or not Trump even knows of Lev Parnas. And just keep in mind, he literally just said on Anderson Cooper's show, or uh, Andy Cooper show, that uh, Giuliani was in constant communication with Trump on what to do about Ukraine, and then Giuliani sort of, uh, I don't know if this was with the the knowledge of the president or without the knowledge of the president, forced him to, or not forced him, appointed him to be sort of his Ukraine point man because he had connections, and of course, in in that same Anderson Cooper interview, Parnas says, oh no, I don't have any connections, my partner, Igor Fruman, who's sort of like his brother in this entire situation, they've traveled together multiple times, they do their sort of dirty work together and all this stuff, He's saying, "Oh no, he has the has the the contact." So Parnas is just taking this from all different angles and trying to push it off on other people. And we don't know what he's done, we don't know what he, you know what what these other people have done, but you can see that there's so many different uh conflicting interests here and so many different uh sort of standpoints of potential guiltiness. And where does everything if you draw the line back to anything, it's always Donald Trump. So here's Jim Acosta from CNN. Uh, asking uh, Donald Trump if he knows of Lev Parnas or even has spoken to Lev Parnas.
4: What is your response to Lev Parnas who says that your efforts in your were all about 2020, you just wanted Joe Biden out? What's your response? Well, I don't know
1: him. I don't know Parnas other than I guess I had uh, pictures taken, which I do with thousands of people, including people today that I didn't meet. But uh, just met him. Uh, I don't know him at all. Don't know what he's about. Don't know where he comes from, know nothing about him. I don't even know who this man is, other than I guess he attended fundraisers, so I take a picture with him. Uh, I'm in a room, I take pictures with people. I take thousands and thousands of pictures with people all the time.
0: So, uh, I mean, (laughs) uh, you know. I, I don't know what to believe from that. But he says that that Parnas, uh, he doesn't know Parnas at all. It's a sketchy operation. I mean, really, why why would you just get into it? And how does Biden come into it? Also, if, if none of this makes sense, if I'm, what I'm talking about makes no sense, I'd highly recommend listening to episode number 111 where I sort of go in more depth into uh, what Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman's role uh, is. Basically, they're... To summarize very briefly, they're using straw donors to influence PACs uh, from the Republican Party and Trump so they could somehow get Marie Yovanovitch, the uh, the, uh, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, fired. That's Mm -hmm. basically what they're doing. Uh, and so many other things as well. I mean, if you want to read the indictments, we'll have them on the website, j-troy.com. Anyway, the power of this impeachment thing has been amazing. And on Tuesday, the Senate will vote on what is to come next. The ball is now in Mitch McConnell's hands. And we're going to keep an eye on it. We're going to see exactly where what happens, where this goes, and sort of the future of impeachment. It's interesting times, really interesting times. And the way that people are treating this, I don't know. I really don't know what to think of it. I, I think people are not taking it with the seriousness and the solemnity that it deserves, because it is a terrible thing when a president gets impeached. It is a, you know, I mean, it is a historic event no matter what side you take on it, but people are not treating it as such, and maybe it's just because the public's disinterest in it, and, 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 you know, maybe it's not. Also, it's probably because Trump just has such a loyal band of supporters who will literally, as Trump has said himself, if he goes out onto, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue and shoots someone in the head, he'll still have the exact same, you know, Number of voters, so that's probably big reason why he—I uh, mean—he's still succeeding. In fact, he was at a at a rally during the 2020 presidential debates, and he was just going off, and you know, no one cared about anything. They didn't really seem to care or understand the veracity of this impeachment scandal. Uh, all his voters didn't really seem to care. We'll talk about that next, as well as the CNN debate. 2020 candidates. Oh, this is so interesting. This is, in my opinion, way more interesting than the impeachment stuff. I'm just saying, from my own personal perspective, we're going to talk about uh, 2020 candidates coming up next on episode number uh, 119 of the Jade Podcast Podcast. Talk about the winners and the losers of the debate and what the entire thing means for the future of our country. This is the Jade Podcast.
1: To the Jay Daugherty Podcast on the JD Media Network.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Jay Doherty Podcast, four thirty-four, broadcasting live. Thank you very much for being back here and listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number one hundred and nineteen. Twenty twenty candidates farted out on the CNN debate stage, and boy, that was interesting. Sort of ridiculous, but really, really interesting, and really, really great. Actually, I'm going to go through who I think won and lost in that order. But first, we have to establish some context. This was the smallest presidential debate that we've had so far there with with just two candidates recently dropping out I think we've narrowed it down to the final six and uh, it just so happens that the winners of these six and perhaps in addition to Andrew Yang uh, it was the arguably the best and quickest uh, on their feet these people uh, up on this debate stage and that's not really saying much are the ones <laughs> that are most likely to uh, lose the presidential debate the people who are the fastest the, the are the, that are the best they are the people that are most likely to lose in my mind, really. In other in other uh, realms of context, the debate was moderated by CNN's Wolf Blitzer, Abby Phillip, and the Des Moines Register's and Steele. It was incredibly biased, of course, as to be expected, um, but really fun to watch. It got off to a little bit of a rough start, and I'm not even talking about, about the candidates. Listen to how Wolf Blitzer opened up the debate.
2: Live from Drake University in Iowa. This is the you
0: see he says in Ohio Iowa it's like oh I just realized what state I'm in which is sort of in, which is sort of interesting when you compare it to something that we we're going to hear from Trump in a couple minutes. We'll just let's just listen to that again. I think that's funny. Live from the CNN debate in Ohio Iowa
2: from Drake University in Iowa
0: yeah, that's funny. Okay. It, it also closed pretty roughly, considering this audio that revealed what both Elizabeth Warren had Bernie Sanders, both losers of this debate, in my opinion, said to each other. This is some tabloid stuff right here.
3: I think you called me a liar on national TV. What? I think you called me a liar on national
2: you know, TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that Anything? discussion. You called me You told me... All right. Let's not do it. Now. Not, I don't want to get in the it. I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah.
0: yeah. Good. <laughs> okay. That's Tom Steyer right there. Uh, and it, with no, con- if, if you haven't seen that, de- if you haven't seen the debate, that's actually good because that's probably a lot more interesting than if you have not seen the debate. If you just heard that audio, and we're going to explain all that and more. And then before we do that, we're going to get to the winners and losers of the debate. But first, did you know that you can listen to the Jay Dirty podcast on your Amazon Echo device now? You can. If you have any. Other type of device capable of connecting to the internet, including your cell phone, you can just open the Alexa app or go to j-dority.com and enable the j Podcast skill for free. It will be added to your flash briefing for the day. If you uh, want to listen to the j Podcast on your Echo and not deal with the pain of connecting a separate third-party software to that device, just quickly enable the skill on your Echo in a matter of seconds. Just go to j-dority.com slash Alexa for free and listen today. Okay, winners and losers of this debate. Pete Buttigieg. Total winner. In my opinion, out of all the people on the stage, Pete Buttigieg has the best healthcare plan, and he also has the best personality and the best intellect out of all of them, in my opinion. The best far and above, without a doubt. It is the perfect, I'm talking about him and his Medicare plan, (laughs) it is the perfect, most independent balance between interventionism and the opposite. Healthcare for Buttigieg is a big win. And ironically, in terms of the core values, it's pretty conservative. Of course, the policy itself is not conservative by any means, but the way it's set up is, is in my opinion. Instead of just getting uh, the plan for free or having no plan whatsoever, those are two binary choices, you have the choice. In other words, the government can have a role in, in your health care if you want them to, but if you don't want them to, then you don't have to. And that was the strength of Mayor Pete out there Tuesday night, where he explained this very in plain English simple terms.
4: What I'm offering is a choice. You don't have to be in my plan if there's another plan that you would rather keep. And there's no need to kick Americans off the plans that they want in order to deliver healthcare for all. Exactly. And my plan is paid for.
0: So, I mean, he was one of the candidates who, on top of just laying that out in very, very specific terms. He actually talks specifics about how they're going to pay for all this stuff, which, in any case, out of all those people, all their healthcare plans are ridiculously overpriced. He said that his plan costs about $150 billion per year on average over 10 years, which is a total of $1.5 trillion, which is, even though that sounds like a crazy amount of money, uh, it's drastically less than Bernie's and Warren's, so still crazy amounts of money. So, anyway, it's still a lot. How, Mr. Buttigieg, as if you haven't said this enough, how will you pay... For your uh, Medicare plan. When it comes to healthcare,
4: you can do it in two moves. All I got to do is two things: allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices and roll back the Trump corporate tax cuts that went to
0: corporations and the wealthy that didn't even need it. Okay, I mean that—that that is plain English. That is a 13-minute, 13 13-second 13 explanation about how you're going to pay for it, and that's exactly what the American people want. That is why Trump won. Mitt Romney, a good Republican, almost like a perfect human being in terms of, like, moral standards and character and everything. Didn't agree with him on most of his policy, but a really smart person. He laid out 29 steps for how to boost the economy. And he lost. Trump came out with four words, make America great again, and he won. I mean, that it's Pete Buttigieg, if you can simplify everything and still encapsulate a lot of complex ideas into a couple words or a couple sentences, then you basically won the presidency. A part where... Buttigieg was not so strong, and perhaps this is because of the formatting, was when he didn't really fully take the advantage of the opportunity to give insight into the Iraq War as a veteran himself. He always talks about that, uh, you know, in his uh, speeches, and when he goes around campaigning, he always talks about his military experience, which in my opinion is a really, really strong thing for a presidential candidate to have, he said, and a human being to have. He said the following, uh, but did not really have much else to say when when it came to the Iraq War which was sort of missed opportunity in my mind, but not not too bad. Here's a small amount of what he had to say, uh, though. There are enlisted people that I served with barely old
4: enough to remember those votes on the authorization after 9-11, on the war in Iraq. And there are people now old enough to enlist who were not alive for some of those debates.
0: He also uh, pointed out something really valuable, the hypocrisy of the trump administration when it came to the iran nuclear deal and i think that is wholly appropriate uh but also solvable for the next uh for the next president president trump has
4: made it much harder for the next president to achieve that goal by gutting the iran nuclear deal one that by the way the trump administration itself
0: admitted was working certified so that that's true i mean he sort of digs a hole and this is exactly in a way what obama did with the original plan he made it so it would work in his term, but once it went, and I talk about this on episode number one hundred and seventy or one hundred eighteen, um, when, when the second that he leaves office, it's the next guy's problem, and that's what Obama had in this Iran nuclear deal. And the entire the entire stimulation of their economy was the next guy's problem to fix, and now that the fact because you know if they pull out of it, which Trump did. There's going to be short-term retaliation, and that's for Trump to deal with, and that's why he killed Soleimani, and that's why there's going to be much more conflict with Iran now that they're enriching their uranium once again because the other countries, the United States being the big sponsor and the big head of it, other countries are having trouble holding Iran accountable just because they don't have such a powerful presence compared to the United States, even though they do generally. The countries are like the top-tier countries in the world. You can take the Obama approach to the Iran nuclear deal problem and say sorry for all the bad stuff my predecessor did, uh, and that's what Obama did in two thousand nine when talking about George Bush, sort of saying I want a renewed relation- relationship. In fact, I think, to the best of my knowledge, Obama said I would you know grab your hand if you would unclench your fist to Iran, and that's what happened. That's the reason he was able to get the nuclear deal passed. It took almost a decade, but he was able to do it. New beginnings can work in my ma- in my mind. If the deal is mutually beneficial, and that's what Obama did, Trump, of course, did the opposite and pulled out of the nuclear deal and bombed one of their leaders. Uh, and Buttigieg is probably just going to be that cycle over and over again. It's form new relationship, then then destroy relationship, then build the relationship back up, then destroy the relationship. And in my opinion, the United States has no place in Iran. We need to stop becoming so dependent on fossil-fueled economies, and in in oil, you know, everything is based off of oil and money, and the Middle East, just because of their natural geo- geographic location, has it, and that's really the only reason, I mean, not the only reason, but it's a major reason why, there, you know, the United States has such a dr- long, drawn-out conflict in that region. 75% of Americans say that we don't even need to be in Iran. There's no reason to even be <laughs> there in the first place. So, I don't know, That that's up to him, and I hope we can restore our relationship with Iran, at least to some extent, for the <laughs> mutual benefit of the other uh, almost 300 countries in the world. Yeah, anyway, Buttigieg moved up a little bit in my mind. Not a lot. He sort of was lonely at the top in this debate. There wasn't anything particularly special for him. He didn't have any crazy one-liners or anything. But nothing bad happened. It was all good, and he proved himself capable of handling tough and on one's feet situation. So, good job, Mr. Buttigieg. I I congratulate you. Amy Klobuchar was another winner. Actually, the only other winner. She also did pretty well. She was moderate and reasonable like Buttigieg. She sort of opened up kind of weak and hypocritical when it came to Iran, though. Not too great of a start, but she she made room for improvement.
3: We have a very important resolution. We just found out today that four Republicans are joining Democrats to go to him and say, you must have an authorization of military force if you're going to go to war with Iran. That is so important because we have a situation where he got us out of the Iranian nuclear agreement, something I worked on uh, for a significant period of time. As president, I will get us back into that agreement. I will take an oath to protect and defend our constitution, and I will
0: mean it. Okay, well, that's so handy-dandy. So there's two parts to what she had to say. Uh, Part A, hypocrisy much? I mean, she's literally saying that this, is, this thing is essential to have at least Congress be notified if America is planning on going a war or striking a foreign country, a foreign nation. The notification part, which I am for, I am actually really for that, at least the public, and even if it's in the short term, it's like, okay, in two minutes we're going to blow up the leader of Iran. Okay, that's great. Because it, for so many different reasons, for the stock market, for the general you know, notification of the United States, and so many other things... Uh, and also, it's not so much of a four-hour delay, because all it is is literally just four hours. As soon as the guy's killed, there's going to be people who are going to be reporting on it anyway. So, you know, anyway, anyway, that that's sort of what I'm saying then on the notification part, just from my perspective. But also, she worked with the president, a president, Obama, on a nuclear deal for that country. And that same president attacked Libya without the notification of Congress or of the American people. So, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. She's saying that Trump was mandated to notify Congress and the general public that he's going to strike uh, Iran's Soleimani when the president that she was just boasting about working for literally launched a drone strike on Libya without notifying Congress or the public. Or launched a strike on Libya or, you know, took aggressive action against Libya. So, hypocrisy, hypocrisy president also doesn't always have to deal with procedure, but in, in, I really actually don't think it's smart for either president for Obama or Trump or Bush or whoever the next president is to notify the people in these, t- in these sorts of cases where they feel it is necessary to strike, because that's just dealing with unneeded layers of bureaucracy in many cases. I mean, what I like to call procedural nonsense It's really not bureaucracy, and it's defined in its strictest terms, but why why make it a why make it a hassle so i think in in very limited use in extreme moderation not notifying people is a decent move for the president but why even bring that up just just make the point and get on with your day uh, i said there were two parts that's the first part the second part is i would make a promise to fix the parts that have proven to fail with a nuclear deal as I talked about in uh, episode number 118, there was no reason to believe that overwhelming appeasement is the only diplomatic solution to a problem, especially within Iran. There really isn't any reason to believe that. And in terms of U.S. policy with Iran, that is something I'm scared of with Klobuchar. Or at least I would I would be scared, or I was scared for, for like, you know, maybe 30 minutes, because she changed her mind later in the debate. She literally changed her mind. She changed exactly what she said. Uh, She said that she would alter parts of this nuclear deal if she became president about 15 minutes later. She rambles on here, and before we listen to that, I just want to play exactly what she said previously... In these first 30 seconds, just listen to the part about where she says that she worked with Obama on the nuclear deal and that she's going to bring it back into place within the United States and that will solve all the problems. We
3: have a very important resolution. We just found out today that four Republicans are joining Democrats to go to him and say you must have an authorization of military force if you're going to go to war with Iran. That is so important because we have a situation where he got us out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. Something I worked on uh, for a significant period of time as president. I will get us back into that agreement. I will thank take you. an oath to protect and defend our constitution. Thank, thank you. And I will mean it.
0: So she literally says, "As president, I will take, I will, I will get us back into that agreement." That is that is a direct quote from her. Then 15 minutes later, and again, she's sort of rambling here. Here's what she had to say. She said that she would fix part of it.
3: I would start negotiations again, and I won't take that as a given, given that our European partners are still trying to hold the agreement together. My issue is that because of the actions of Donald Trump, uh, we are in a situation where they are now starting, Iran is starting to enrich uranium <clears throat> again in violation of the original agreement. So what I would do is negotiate. I would bring people together together. Uh, just as President Obama did uh, years ago, and I think that we can get this done. But you have to have a president that sees this as a number one goal, and in answer to the original question you asked uh, the mayor, uh, I would not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon, and then you have to get an agreement in place. I think there are changes you can make to the agreement, better sunset, some changes to the inspections, but overall, that is what we should do.
0: Okay, so... (laughs) I mean, she literally says, "I, as president, I will reinstate this exact agreement. And then 15 minutes later, I'm going to change this agreement and then reinstitute it. So make up your mind. I mean, that's really the, the, the summary here. At least she's clear, though. I mean, she really is clear. She, she's good at communicating what she's trying to say. Uh, but, you know, she rambles a little bit. But what she's trying to put her point across is clear. And that's where I sort of appreciated what she was saying. Uh, where I do agree, though, with Klobuchar on Middle East policy specifically is where she comprehensively describes her policy on removing or not removing troops from the entire region. I have to say that I agree with all of what she says, except that I think gradually drawing troops from Afghanistan would be more beneficial as opposed to just doing it all at once, uh, especially considering how rocky Trump's policy has been with the Taliban. Anyway, here is uh, Klobuchar answering this question. Remember, she begins here by talking about the Middle East holistically, as an entity of uh, conglomerate of countries? I
3: would leave some troops there, uh, but not in the level that uh, Donald Trump is taking us right now. Uh, Afghanistan, I have long wanted to bring our troops home. I would do that. Uh, Some would remain for counterterrorism and training. In Syria, I would not have removed the 150 troops from the border with Turkey. I think that was a mistake. I think it made our allies and many others much more vulnerable to ISIS um, and then when it comes to Iraq right now, I would leave our troops there despite the mess that has been created by Donald Trump. Perfect. That is literally a perfect
0: answer. By all means, in my opinion. You know, she says, this is what we need to do. She, I mean, it's, it's almost like, I mean, she probably rehearsed this, but uh, she says, look, I would leave some troops there. In Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iran, in Iraq. And answers the entire questions within a very brief thirty-three seconds and eighty milliseconds. Also, she had a pretty cringy moment at the end where she couldn't remember Kansas Governor Laura Kelly's name. Oh boy, this is this is just sort of I don't know. I, I it's not terrible, but it does not help her in in any way, in my opinion. You have to be
3: competent. And when you look at the facts, uh, Michigan has a woman governor right now, and she beat a Republican, Gretchen Whitmer. Kansas has a woman governor right now, and she beat Chris Kobach. And her name um, is, I'm very proud to know her, and her name is um, uh, Governor Kelly. Thank you.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, she, she maybe she just remembered the the last name uh, and then <laughs> seemed to keep going. She was answering a question about uh, women in in politics, uh, and uh, she she had probably the best response out of everyone on that stage uh, about women in politics. Uh, you know, citing the people who have been very successful, and uh, that was a little bit cringy. It did not help her at all, but um, it was a little bit. You know, it's, it's not terrible. It's not really that bad. Uh, So those are the winners, Amy Klobuchar and uh, Pete Buttigieg, by far, in my opinion, the winners, probably the most moderate, besides Joe Biden out there, Uh, and they did pretty well. Speaking of Joe Biden, he was a total loser in this debate. He barely even spoke. He literally, I mean, er, when he did speak, it did not resonate with me, and it didn't resonate with the the general population of the American people. He's decent and similar to Buttigieg on healthcare, which is good, but he was way less clear and far less articulate. And
1: we can, in fact, do all of this and still provide people the option to stay the roughly 150, to 160 million Americans who like the negotiated plan they have with their employers. If they don't like it or the employer gets rid of it, they can buy into a Medicare plan and the Biden plan.
0: So, that's a 17-second clip that was taken from about a a one-and-a-half-minute rant about how he's going to institute health care. And from the result of that, I only got those 17 seconds of value. So. I think to be a on-your-feet communicator is incredibly important for a president uh, of any country. And Biden, whether it's a result of his age, whether it's a result of him just not knowing, what I don't know what it was a result of, but he's, he's just not inherently articulate as many of his competitors are. Like Buttigieg and like Klobuchar. And that's a weakness. And his poll numbers are staying pretty steady. I mean, people don't really seem to care. Uh, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. It's certainly a good thing for Biden but that's sort of where it happened. He ha- he handled the attacks well, though, uh, from Bernie Sanders on the Iraq war, which was a total failure on the part of Biden, of course, uh, at the time, but he did handle it well when uh, Sanders attacked him on it.
2: The war in Iraq turned out to be the worst foreign policy blunder in the modern history of this country. As Joe well knows, we lost 4,500 brave troops, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died, we have spent trillions of dollars on that endless war, money which should go into healthcare and education and infrastructure in this country. Joe and I listened to what Dick Cheney and George Bush and Rumsfeld had to say. I thought they were lying. I didn't believe them for a moment. I took to the floor. I did everything I could to prevent that war. Joe saw it differently. Vice President Biden. I was asked to bring
1: 156,000 troops home from that war, which I did, I led that effort. It was a mistake to trust that they weren't going to go to war. They said they were not going to go to war. They said they were just going to get inspectors in. The world, in fact, voted to send inspectors in and they still went to war. From that point on, I was in the position of making the case that it was a big, big mistake. And from that point on, I voted to, I, I moved to bring those troops home.
0: Okay, so that was actually a decent response. I think that was probably the best moment of, of the debate. And it's not a good look to defend, uh, to to have your defense moment be the best moment of your debate, because obviously that's the thing that you practice the most. You knew you're going to be attacked on it, and that's a liability that Joe Biden has. It is an asset that he has such high-level executive experience but it is a liability because people are questioning his records based off of current events that are currently happening and things that he did previously to perhaps contradict his current philosophies on on what are, what is happening right now. You heard Bernie Sanders in that clip. He was also a loser. In terms of debating style, I think this debate was not that bad for him, actually, but he was, as an isolated occurrence, it was certainly not beneficial for him whatsoever of course he and joe biden uh, debated quite intensely about the economy and such i mean capitalism versus socialism the two whitehead uh, white, white haired guys on that stage debating about uh, you know a communistic policy and a capitalistic policy or socialist policy i guess you could say he was pretty socialist but sort of conflicting about on his views about iran that's what uh, sanders i'm talking about sanders here he said that there should be an international coalition of countries instead of a multilateral agreement where the US acts unilaterally to do whatever they want. This is really where you get into the hardcore isolationist kind of conglomerate of of, of multinational deals. It's very, very funny.
2: What we need to do is have an international coalition. We cannot keep acting unilaterally. As you know, the nuclear deal with Iran was worked on with a number of our allies. We have got to undo what Trump did. Bring that coalition together and make sure that Iran
0: never gets a nuclear weapon. So, yeah, I agree. I actually do agree. There, there, there needs to be cooperation with multiple countries on an issue. International coalition is a little bit too far in my mind. I think having a multilateral agreement like Obama did was good, but not the terms of the agreement, which interjected basically $51.8 billion into Iran's economy. Trump says that it's 150 billion dollars, which is just fact, like factually untrue. Uh, but 51.8 billion dollars into their economy did not help the United States in any way. It did not help the allies of the agreement. And you do not need, as I've talked about before and as I said earlier on this episode, overwhelming appeasement is not the answer to diplomatic solutions within Iran. It's just not. That, that's, that's just the answer, and, and has been, as has been proven multiple times by the actions of Obama and the actions of Donald Trump. Uh, I actually thought that he was going to say in that clip that he wanted to bring back the Obama policy. Of course, he has laid out his troop plans time and time again, but the fact is that in terms of locking the United States into a long-term deal, that policy was not elaborated on much in the debate from Sanders. In terms of economic policy, he sort of once again took the extremely liberal approach to hating NAFTA, a law signed by the husband of his former 2016 opponent—sorry, uh, the, the wife of his 2016 opponent— uh, Joe Biden, who, thank God, still believes in capitalism, is is a working form of economic doctrine, was being compared by Sanders and their views. Their views, sorry. And while Sanders has decent criticisms of NAFTA, ones that I actually partially agree with, I don't think they accurately manifest into the entire holistic principle of free trade in the West. On top of the fact that the deal was replaced by Trump's uh, Mexico-Canada agreement. There's a little bit of confusion there.
2: Joe and I have a fundamental disagreement here, in case you haven't noticed.
0: <laughs> and that is NAFTA,
2: PNTR with China, other trade agreements were written for one reason alone, and that is to increase the profits of large multinational corporations. And the end result of those two, just PNTR with China, Joe, and uh, NAFTA cost us some 4 Million jobs.
0: Okay, so I think saying that the only reason that those trades were, those agreements were um, written was to enrich corporate companies is just untrue. And that is uh, is certainly an unintentional or maybe intentional consequence of what was happening. Probably intentional in many cases, especially Clinton, Bush, and Obama. But uh, it is... That's just not true. I mean, free trade is the best principle of the West. It's part of the reason, actually most of the reason, that the West has been so successful in so many endeavors that it's taken on and why I am able to have this podcast right now and why uh, people around me and the people that I witness and everyone in America can build a business from dirt. I mean, so to say, you know, Sanders is sort of contradicting the place that he's in right now and and, and many of his uh, small business-owning supporters and even large business-owning supporters so that's sort of interesting Uh, we'll move on now to Elizabeth Warren another loser in this debate absolutely horrible by far worst last place in this entire debate and Democrats are slamming her for what she has done not the media by any means the media has been outwardly supportive of her just like the DNC has again that's the Democrats going hand in hand with with, uh, the media here just like the Fox News goes hand in hand with the RNC but I'm just saying the the way that uh, li- that elizabeth warren treated bernie sanders and then the way that the bernie sanders is treating the media is going the exact same it's the opposite when it comes to elizabeth warren the media is doing everything they possibly can to in, to support elizabeth warren to make her look like the victim to make her look more powerful but it's just miserably failing because there are a lot of sanders supporters that are hating on what she's done well and if, this, if this makes no sense we'll talk about the context uh, of what this is, but a- anyway, just so you understand the 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 scale of how angry Sanders supporters who are the leftists of the leftists of the leftists in this entire planet in the United States, the press secretary for his campaign, the person that would likely take over the job of press secretary or take the job of press secretary in the White House if he were elected, called out the media and why his why his supporters hate them and she demanded an apology from the from CNN to their campaign. In fact, when I watched Elizabeth Warren's first town hall appearance as a candidate, which was on CNN back in spring of last year, she was actually pretty decent. She was pretty good. The debate sunk her in my mind 500 points out of 100, by far. She was terrible. And much of that had to do with just how awfully unfair CNN's reporting has been about Bernie Sanders' situation, so much to the point where Bernie Sanders' supporters, the most left of the left, as I said, are criticizing CNN. Can you believe that? Really, the left, the leftists of the leftists, are criticizing CNN. Never thought this day would come, and the person responsible for it is Bernie Sanders. And I also never thought that. Again, keep in mind, I am a totally independent, politically independent person. I have no association with binary politics. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I just think it is crazy that crazy lefts are supporting or are hating on CNN. Uh, additionally, the the it's not only that they're treating Elizabeth Warren well, it's that inversely they are treating Bernie Sanders' campaign hor- horribly. And all roots from the fact that the DNC does not want Bernie Sanders and arguably and probably the most politically liberal individual in modern US politics serving in the US government looking to become the United States president. There is a concerted effort by the DNC, and interdependently the media, to paint Bernie Sanders poorly, especially within the first couple of days. We saw it in 2016. It's happening once again. The DNC did everything they could to make sure Hillary Clinton not only became the nominee, but also tried to make her president, and they just could not do it. They did the nominee part, but they did everything they could to shut down Sanders. And ironically, the general public seems to be moving in Sanders' directions after CNN's quote-unquote bombshell reporting that in 2018... According to Elizabeth Warren Sanders said that a woman cannot become president. I have to admit when I first saw the story I was like jeez Bernie you were doing all right and then you know some uninformed and stupid thing you said in the past comes out and ruins your reputation and possibly your bid for president. What the heck were you thinking when you said that? I mean that is a terrible thing to say. Then I learned more about it. This whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. Bernie is so outwardly liberal, so much more than Warren. He was one of the first people to even bring up what was at the time the ludicrous idea that a woman could even become president. He said it 1988 on national television that a woman could become president. Of course, the idea is no longer ludicrous, and I actually think that there are lots of women who are more than capable, in fact, better than many men to become president. I happen to actually believe that it makes absolutely no difference what gender or race you are, as long as I agree with your values, character, and the policy you set forth. There should be no difference whatsoever in how you treat someone. But that is what Warren tried to make it about. And a couple days before this debate, CNN published a story that said, "Quote: The two agreed that they ultimately faced each other as presidential candidates. They should remain civil and avoid attacking one another so as to not hurt the progressive movement. They also discussed how to best take on President Donald Trump, and Warren laid out two main reasons she believed that she would be a strong candidate. Number one, she could make a robust argument about the economy, and number two, earn broad support from female voters. Sanders responded that he did not believe a woman could win based on the accounts of four people, two uh, people Warren spoke with directly uh, directly soon after the encounter, and two people familiar with the meeting. So these people are probably Warren's campaign staff, if not Warren herself. I mean you know someone with direct ties to Warren definitely leaked this story to hurt Bernie two weeks before the Iowa caucus by the way it was in 2018. the article goes on to say that evening in 2018 meaning that she knew that Bernie Sanders said this all the way back in 2018 they both announced their campaigns on the same day February 19th 2019 Sanders and Warren So all the way back then why didn't you why didn't Elizabeth Warren just shut down Bernie? right on the same day and say this thing, and really hurt him out of the gate, that would have been a great strategy, right? Nope, because it's two weeks before the Iowa caucus and the night before a debate that you release a story like this. I mean, if you look at all the evidence and all the facts, there's absolutely no way that Bernie Sanders said this. In fact, here's Bernie Sanders in 1988 saying that a woman could become president of the United States. This is 1988, before pretty much anyone even thought of this idea, of a woman becoming uh, the president of the United States. The real issue is not whether you're black or white, whether you're a woman or a man. In my
2: view, a woman could be elected president of the United States. The real issue is whose side are you on? Are you on the side of workers and poor people, or are you on the side of big
0: money and the corporations? 1988, that guy said that. So to say that, Elizabeth, that he said that a woman cannot become president is just not true. I mean, I, I, there's no evidence to support that. There is absolutely no evidence to support that. There's overwhelming evidence to support the other side. There's no evidence to support the Warren claim. So I have no reason to believe it. Even though if he did say that, I totally disagree with that. It's an awful thing to say, and it's totally untrue. The article from CNN goes on to say, Sanders expressed frustration at what he saw growing a focus among Democrats on identity politics, according to one of the people familiar with the conversation. Warren Warren told Sanders she disagreed with his assessment that a woman could not win, three of four sources said. So, um, that's sort of a different thing, uh, what, what, this, what this says. I think, I don't think a woman become pre- so the so, like, the way Sanders put it, I, there's, there's two different ways of putting this, and two different ways the article says he put this. Number one, a woman cannot become president, that's what this article says, that he said. And then number two, what they say in the article is that uh, a woman could not win. So, those are two different things, in my mind. A woman not being able to win just because of circumstances that are out of their hands and them actually doing the job of president are two totally different things. So I don't think that's totally true. In response to this, and so so and that's what I'm saying. I, I don't think this this story really aligns on top of the overwhelming evidence that Sanders probably did not say this in all likelihood. Um, The story goes on to say, quote, It is ludic- lud- th- This is what Bernie Sanders uh, says in response to this story coming out that really sort of damaged him out of the gate. He said, quote, "...it is ludicrous to believe that at the same meeting where Elizabeth Warren told me she was going to run for president that I would tell her a woman cannot win. It's sad that three weeks before the Iowa caucus and a year after that private conversation, staff who weren't in the room are lying about what happened." What I did say that night was that Donald Trump is a sexist, a racist, and a liar who would weaponize whatever he could. Do I believe a woman can win in 2020? Of course. After all, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by 3 million votes in 2016. Perfect response. That was a phenomenal response. And of course a woman could win. Of course. Anyone who says otherwise just doesn't look at the facts. Really. They just don't. Um... But Bernie Sanders has been the most supportive of women woman for running from office, for office since the beginning of time. <laughs> the guy's a dinosaur in politics, as we just talked about in that 1988 clip. The man is not a sexist. I really don't believe that he's a sexist at all. He's in it. Uh, he's not in it for himself. I think he likes to push his policy. And to be honest, he is the only one who has proven himself to be consistent, patient, and persistent throughout his career, and arguably more of those three things than any other person on that stage. I mean, Pete Buttigieg is pretty great, actually my favorite candidate by far right now, but he's only been mayor, you know, uh, he served in the military, he has more political experience than Donald Trump, but at least he's held elected office, served in the military, and is genuinely intelligent compared to Donald Trump. Even with that, though, those amazing credentials of Mr. Buttigieg, he does not have the matched political experience like Warren and Sanders do. Now, of course, the persistence that Bernie... Uh, has does not mean that he uh, that he isn't crazy because of because many of his policies are. I mean, I really do think that I, I do believe just like uh, pretty much every Democrat running for president that Sanders is a really good man. I really do believe that. Generally, he is a good and honest person, which should be the standard in all American politics and all politics around the world. It isn't, but it should be. And also logically, if Warren knew <laughs> that Sanders said this awful comment about women and kept it to herself for what three hundred and 30 days, 333 days or something like that, not to mention the fact that uh, she had been friends with Sanders for years beforehand, in fact, there's multiple clips uh, of them hugging each other, of Sanders endorsing, uh, or not endorsing, but Sanders supporting Warren, Warren supporting Sanders before they announced, I mean, they literally, they announced their candidacy on the same day in 2019, February 19th, I mean, you're going to tell me that that wasn't somehow cordially planned? Crazy. And also, when Sanders said that thing in 1988 about how a woman can certainly become president, Warren was a Republican. That is how long ago that was. She switched eight years after he said that on TV. Of course, there's no correlation to that, but, you know, I'm just giving you a sense of uh, how long ago that actually was. I mean, really. There is no way that he actually said that to Warren, and I think the media has been treating him horribly, horribly um, Tom Steyer, also a loser. Uh, he's a, he's actually a funny man. No, not a loser in general. I'm saying loser in the debate. He actually made some decent points, though. I mean, the only reason I put him in the loser category is because he has no chance of winning. Pete Buttigieg utterly destroyed him on climate change, and out of all of the people on that stage, he was quite clearly the least politically experienced. He spent millions, just like his fellow billionaire Michael Bloomberg, on uh, spending money. In fact, there was an article from NPR that says, New figures show billionaire candidates spending big with little return, and that's probably just all you really need to know about this sort of thing. Guess yeah, this is crazy. Bloomberg has spent two hundred million dollars on ads. Two hundred million, almost. Steyr, hundred twenty-three million. Buttigieg, twenty-two million. Sanders, twenty million. Warren, fourteen. Yang, nine. Biden, ten. Klobuchar, six. Gabbard three, Delaney two uh Bennett 2 Patrick two. most of those people at the end have dropped out 200 million dollars for Bloomberg 123 million for Steyer and they're both at the bottom of the polls like I mean really <laughs> that's sort of pathetic in my opinion like are you really that bad that you need to that you just need to you know gallivant your money in a way? That's probably not the the best word for it, but he's there gallivanting around and using their money to promote their ideas when they're not gaining any traction. Uh, anyway, Tom Steyer is basically out there making a name for himself. I mean, it's a really good name. I, I don't really know if his goal is to actually win the presidency, but he seems like a very good-hearted, philanthropic person, uh, but not presidential material, in my opinion. During all of this debate nonsense, Trump was at a rally in Wisconsin. He held these rallies on, on the debate nights. He attacked Joe Biden once again, quite amusingly. These these rallies are sort of just equally, no, like 10 times more insane than the Democratic debates. What he says at these rallies. I mean, he just rants and rants and talks to his supporters and, you know, boosts his ego and all this nonsense. He was he was in Milwaukee in this rally, and he was <laughs> saying that Joe Biden doesn't know what state he's in when he's in these rallies. It was sort of funny. You
1: ever notice with Biden, he's always going the wrong state?
0: And in your great state of uh, Iowa, Iowa. It's
1: Iowa, right? No, it's Wisconsin. Oh, I meant Wisconsin. Oh, I didn't know I was in Wisconsin. That's fine. How many times has he done that? It's great to be in the state of Ohio. No, sir, you're in in Florida. (laughs) Many times, right? The sad part about that, Sleepy Joe is right. You know the sad part about that? When you do that, you can't really recover. You can be Winston Churchill, make the finest remainder of remarks but you get guilt and he does it every time and the fake news they give him a total pass and that's okay it's all right it's gonna happen to all of us someday yeah it's funny
0: <laughs> you're chuckling yeah. yeah okay so <laughs> i i think that's just funny that he said that i mean i don't really i don't take him seriously at this point on pretty much anything that he says uh which is not a good standard for the president of the united states but you know, we'll all get there someday. That's a funny that's a funny thing. Uh, for, for Biden, especially that they've made age such a big campaign deal. I don't know if Biden actually messes up on on that sort of thing where he like, you know, says he's in the wrong state a lot, uh but in that terrible put y'all back in chain speech in August fourteenth of twenty twelve, when he was speaking in Danville, Virginia, in that was in two thousand twelve, and keep in mind, he was in Danes Danville, Virginia. This is what he said
1: staying with us we need us to go out there and make sure ladies and gentlemen that with you and i mean this with you we can win north
2: carolina oh my god and if we do we win the election if we win you
0: north carolina and you're in virginia and he says we'll win you when he's saying north carolina when he's actually in virginia (laughs) that's funny and that's probably what trump was referencing someone probably someone from his campaign staff probably just like showed him that and thought, okay, well, I'm going to multiply by that multiply that by 10 in my mind and then go spew whatever nonsense I have in my brain. That's sort of the general strategy of all things Trump. Uh, but that's how it goes. This has been a long episode, uh, an hour and 10 minutes. I think what I'm going to do is just, uh, let's see here. I've, everything should be good on the live stream. I think I'm just going to end it right here because we talked a lot about stuff. I think the 2020 stuff is, as I maybe have articulated to you, way more interesting than impeachment and everything that has to do with impeachment. Uh, but super interesting times that we live in and i just can't wait to see where both of these things go there's so much more to come and i mean my prediction Mitch McConnell will acquit and presidential nominations that is hard to say really i, I don't think it'll be worn there's absolutely no way it'll be worn after this uh failure that she just had um and other things probably combined um maybe Sanders maybe biden hopefully Buttigieg or klobuchar I'd be happy with any of those. It's going to be interesting to see exactly what happens. Anyone but Donald Trump is basically the the, the solution to this problem, I, I I think. Well, actually, maybe not anyone, but most people. Yeah. It's episode number 119 of the J. Podcast. I appreciate you listening. Go to jay I would really appreciate it if you sign up for our newsletter, where I send out uh, email updates every week. The latest podcast, latest topics, and you can get all of it from the Doherty Files and j and the JD Media Network. I appreciate you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Every Saturday we broadcast live and put out a new episode. Follow me on Twitter at jddjr777. Go to j to become a subscriber to our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. This is the J. Doherty Podcast. The J. Doherty podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J. Doherty. TJDP is voiced by NewsMike VoiceOver, hosted by Blueberry, and edited with audition. The J. Doherty podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright J. Doherty 2019. Make sure to listen to other J.D. Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for weekly discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j Doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at the DohertyFiles.com. Thank you for listening. listening. Listening to this episode of the Jay Doherty podcast for all the latest world
1: and national news on technology, politics, and more. Listen live to the Jay Doherty podcast on j-doherty.com. The JD Media Network.